I have come here to Krakowie, and I'm all out of bubble. Really licked his ass. Are you watching closely? And welcome to Midnight Showing. I'm Nash, that's Luke, and this week the movie we watched at midnight was Terry Gilliam's Brazil. It wasn't worth it. That's what we're here to tell you, and don't worry, we will notify you before we start spoiling. So, Luke. Set in the year of who knows when, <laughs> we follow Sam Lowry, a worker bee bureaucrat who dreams for a life more exciting than the mundane existence he has fallen into. Nash, I can't lie to you, bro. I don't know how to describe this world in a paragraph, so that's really all I'm going to say. <laughs> that, that is fair, and honestly, the, describing the trailer, I'm kind of in the same way. It's not a bad trailer, all right? I think it's maybe a little too long, although I will spoil this one thing about it. So if you don't want to hear that, skip 30 seconds or whatever. But it features Robert De Niro in the trailer. It even says his name like second or first in the trailer as an actor, like he's going to be a huge part in it. And he's maybe in the first, um, he's maybe in like three scenes. Yeah. Like three, scenes which total. I, I only spoil that because I hate when trailers do that. <laughs> so if you're watching this movie to see Robert De Niro in action, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> so I think that's a fair warning. <laughs> no, that's a super fair warning. Who, uh, I think I think we know this director. Have have we previously done a Terry Gilliam film, Nash? We do know this director. Um, he's not unknown to us, or if you're a day one listener, go back to episode one, 12 Monkeys, one Ooh. of our top rated films. Um, he's pretty well known uh, for those new viewers for his black comedies, uh, his distrust for bureaucracy and authoritarianism. Um, he's done a lot of work with Monty Python. He's actually in Monty Python, the the gang of misfits, the whole lot of them. He's one of them. Yeah, that, that's, that's Terry Gilliam for you. And, uh, we didn't have a writer section because he also played a huge role in writing this movie, which makes total sense because, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, we'll, we'll get into it. So this movie is starring, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Price as Sam Lowry. Our lead. I think he does a pretty good job. Then, um, just, mm-hmm. just to make Nash mad, I put Robert De Niro second as Tuttle. <laughs> <laughs> God. Then I got uh, Catherine Helmond as Mrs. Ida Lowry, uh, his mother. And then Kim Greist as Jill Leon. Um, there's other people in this movie, but kind of similar to Scanners last week. They're kind of just along for the ride. And I felt like those four were kind of the main players. And even his mom isn't so much of a player. It's a very, very odd film to kind of do an opening bit on. You know what I mean? So there's yeah. there's people in this movie is the best I can say. <laughs> and I will say um, this movie is probably for the theme. We went with freedom from the utopia slash dystopia world that they live in, that he lives in. Um, that's really about it. I feel like it's the quintessential Terry Gilliam movie. Yeah, I agree. 
So, um, Luke, thumbs up or down? Um, it's going to be a thumbs up, but I don't understand why it's a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the difficulty I had with this movie is that I feel like it does, but also it kind of doesn't. I'm I'm going to be kind of a pain in the neck here and I'm I'm going to just keep it even. Right. I'm going to keep it I'm going to keep it level. Just because I, I really, it's hard to place for me because it feels like it does so many things good, and then it feels like it's lacking in a pretty major way. But well, that's the whole for, point of our discussion, bro. Yeah, it is. You're right. <laughs> right again, Lukey boy. <laughs> so before we get into it, this spoiler alert. All right. Um. So. Luke, how do we want to start off this discussion? I want to ask you who the antagonist of this film is. Oh, wow. Yep. Off the bat, asking you a pretty major question about the uniqueness of this film. That's something I didn't even think about. And I could say it's almost twofold. It's essentially the society they live in, but it's also himself sam lowry oh you think okay okay elaborate that wasn't what i was expecting you to say i like it because he really sort of creates all of the problems that he has if you think about it like his daydreams sort of are our big our best calibration of to like who he is as a person and those kind of push him forward So most of the time he's sort of fighting himself because it's very clearly when he's out of his element, he's very out of his element. When he's in his element, he's very into it. Like he is an excellent bureaucrat. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I would say he's probably better than most people are in the bureaucratic food chain. He's better at his job than most people seem to be. Mm -hmm. And so to see him where he can thrive in that environment. And then when he tries to do the, you know, break off, gain freedom aspect of it. It's really himself that puts him into the worst situations. Yeah, I'm mean, from um, this movie was really long and confusing, so I might get the timeline wrong when I'm making these references. But from what I remember, he went to the woman's house to give her the refund on the check for her dead husband, and then he saw the woman of his dreams, and that was the catalyst to kind of get him to start putting things in motion. And you're totally right that he put all those things in motion. So I guess my question is, is like the bureaucracy and the world itself the antagonist? Is the world he's living in the villain? Because it almost feels unsatisfying to us because like the first time you think Robert De Niro shows up, you think you were going to go on this like crazy adventure kind of like mm-hmm. like he's Robert De Niro comes off like a like a navy seal with like the outfit he's wearing and the way he like yeah. zip lines everywhere so you think he's going to like be his like guardian like his master his trainer into this new underground world but he isn't he just opens the door exactly he doesn't, he doesn't lead him through it <laughs> exactly so i, I kind of wanted to ask you who the antagonist was because i know that both of us are confused about this movie dude and you'd think after 40 episodes i would like 
be better at reviewing movies, but this one kind of just like <laughs> reality checked me a little bit because when we finished it yesterday, we were both just laughing about. It. We have no idea. Like, right? <laughs> what What did I just watch? Yeah, dude. Like, uh, have you ever seen the? You've seen Hamilton, right? Like the Broadway musical. Yeah, yeah. You know how that's like three and a half hours of like really hardcore fast rapping, and you have to pay attention to almost everything to really understand what's going on. Yeah, it's very fast rapping about very specific historical events. Yeah. yeah. So the first time I watched it, it was like overwhelming because it's it goes and it goes and it goes. And then um, I watched it a second time and it was a lot easier to kind of take in because I was expecting it. I feel uh-huh. like that's what Brazil would be like. That if I sat down for another two and a half hours and watched it, knowing what I was getting into, knowing what the plot was going to be, I could pick up a lot more on it. But because Terry Gilliam crafted such an odd world that every single scene, you're like, what? what it just happened that it's it's almost overwhelming you know and that's a very good point to hit on because just his directing style like when we saw 12 monkeys we thought it was very interesting very excellent technique with disorienting the audience with those camera angles he loves that dutch angle he loves uh magnifying glasses yeah he loves magnifying glasses and this movie is literally just all of that constantly. So it has that constant disoriented effect of it, throwing some daydreams for a little razzle dazzle. And it really does. I wouldn't say it's a confusing mess, but it definitely leaves you in a mess of confusion. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, I think I think that's the perfect way. The movie itself is not a mess, but it leaves you in a mess, which is pretty, I think it's pretty ma- masterfully done. So in terms of like us giving it a thumbs up, I think that this movie is really about the opinion of what you saw and how you interpreted it. But overall, it's almost like this movie is kind of objectively impressive based on who we know Terry Gilliam to be. So, like, I found it interesting that Brazil actually came out before 12 Monkeys and Fisher King. Fisher King was way more grounded in reality than 12 Monkeys in Brazil, obviously. But Fisher King still had those kind of weird Terry Gilliam um, flares. And what we liked about 12 Monkeys originally was that it was a really weird movie and you don't know what's going on so this is just yeah the epitome of what i feel like terry gilliam's brain is like when he thinks about filmmaking yeah and in the description of these those two movies it's sort of it's very accepted that this movie is more bizarre it's more out there it's harder to follow compared to 12 monkeys and the fisher king and uh to live in or what is it? To... I don't know. The one Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, okay. It's like those movies are way more structured. They're easier to follow. They still have a disorienting effect, but not so much as Brazil. Um, and I forget the other movie that goes hand in hand with this. It's like, it's not Time Cop. It's something to do time, with time Bandits? Time Bandits. Time Bandits. Time Bandits, yeah. Terry, like Terry movies... Gilliam directed Time Cop. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta do time cop oh, we, we should do time cop <laughs> get a little jean-claude van damme in here. <laughs> anyway um yeah so that, that that really is the thing to hold on to that this movie isn't meant to be structured as we've become familiar with plot lines I'd yeah say. exactly in fact nash what you and I do when we review movies is talk about how the plot 
unfolds on itself and improves upon itself and how you can start in somewhere and end in a different place. Yeah, this movie really just puts all of that into question, <laughs> dude. Like it 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 really does. And you know, I like it's honestly hard to say how much I liked this movie, and I feel like that was totally the point, and I really think that Terry just wants me to watch this movie again. Yes, we're on a first name basis. <laughs> I know him so well. And that that's another good point too, because he also totally dislikes um like uh, movie like film classes like he dislikes how the establishment you know the educational part of society has decided to do film studies this is how films should be made no not not really exactly he's totally against where he doesn't believe that you know you should know you should just be studying cameras and techniques and angles and all that he said you should really be focusing on philosophy and writing, because if you don't know anything, you're not going to make a new story. What are you going to do? Just talk about cameras the whole movie? Like, that's, <laughs> that's boring. <laughs> yeah. No, dude, 100%. And what I find crazy about Monty Python is when you watched it when you were younger, it was just these goofy movies. But then you go back and watch it, and, like, Life of Brian tells, like, a pretty good, like, moral behind it. And it's Life of Brian. You know what I mean? So, like... Yeah, oh, yeah. The fact it's that a... he... I Sorry, but um, he... You're good. He really is uh, a possibly one of the most unique directors I think that's ever grazed the silver screen, bro. Like straight up, like not not trying to kiss the dude or anything, but like he really just yeah. kills it every movie. Like it feels like every movie is, is exactly the way that he wanted it to to play out. And this movie has just such an insanely consistent tone to it that literally there's not a second of this movie that feels normal the most normal part about it is the love story and the love story itself isn't even normal yeah it's backed around this whole daydream too even if you if you want to add it all together that adds another bit of confusion and that's like the most linear plot line we have is his daydreams yeah (laughs) well dude but i so sorry you go i was going to say about that point you made because you can tell with his movies how they are incredible because they do look and feel like they're in that world. It's not like some movies that we've seen where it kind of feels like the world is lazy. Like they didn't go, they didn't put it at a hundred to make me believe it. They picked and choose, they picked and chose, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I got you. <laughs> the, the, the certain aspects that they want to be like, Oh, this is, you know, distinct to this movie. It's like, it should be the whole world. The world should be engrossing. Mm-hmm. And he really does that masterfully. That's why I think this movie does have us confused because it's taking what we know about plot lines, putting it on our head, but the world we're looking at is, it feels very real. It's very sort of believable. It's made very well for me to accept it. It's almost like it's established, but undefined. And I feel like that's really unique. You do you, you don't know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. It's like... I think I do, but you should go further into it. Well, it's like... So... This movie starts with the explosion into the... Actually, well, the movie starts with the fly... Um, scene in the television which gives you those dutch angles and like all that all that terry gilliam stuff and then as it kind of unfolds 
it's giving you enough things that you can look at and relate to it. Like, they have cars, but they're a little weird. People go to work. People go to work in real life. Um, the police show up, and they hand you paperwork for, like, all this stuff. Like, it's all things that are grounded in reality and things we can relate to, but then we see them on display in such odd ways. The people act so strangely, and you really don't know what anyone's motivation in this world is. I think a good example of that is the first time they're at dinner, and there's the explosion, and none of them care. They keep on going and eating their dinner, and they <laughs> put the little thing behind them. So it's like, yeah, the world, the world kind of, like I said, it's such an insanely consistent tone, and insanely consistent amount of the Terry Gilliam flair that we understand what this world is and how it's weird and how it's a dystopia, but at the same time, it's so weird and such a dystopia that. Everything about that is undefined in itself. Yeah. I also want to bring up that point um, to add to you is when uh, we were watching it and you mentioned the thing about the ducks. Where it's like they had that commercial in the beginning. It was like, you know, are you tired of this old, ugly duck that's in the way of everything? We'll get the ministry's new duct where it's out of the way. It looks nice, you know? Oh, bro, dude, I my brain really just thought you were talking about ducks the animal. <laughs> I, mean, I really was just trying to think of that. When in, when in Brazil were there ducks? What are you talking about? But you mean the D-U-C-T's. Yes, 100%. Yes, the ducks. The ducks. <laughs> Continue, please. Ducks. <laughs> and, uh, like, that, I think, is a very good point. It sets a tone because you do notice them everywhere, especially in that scene where those HVAC guys come in and rip out his whole apartment. Yeah. But you see them in almost every scene, and it's like they're giving a solution to a problem they created, and they've just totally ignored it. Like, that's just become a part of everyday society that those ducks are just everywhere in the world just filtering air because, you know... They're in that city. You even see it when they cut the floor. Like the floor is almost the floor in the ceiling of the apartments is a tiny amount floor and ceiling, and the majority of it is pipes and yeah. ducts. Like it's a very good small element that establishes that world's chaos and re refers to it. It's in literally like every single scene. It's hard to imagine one that doesn't have that in there except maybe when they're in the Ministry of Information. I think a great scene that exemplifies that is when he goes back to his apartment and the two um, worker guys, um, this is after the initial Robert De Niro one, and they have everything from his ceiling hanging down and his apartment is a mess, and they're like, oh yeah, we're taking this over for like two weeks, you can't live here. And it's like... Um, it's like you said that, chaotic. It's so chaotic and disorganized, but at the same time, there's such an emphasis on paperwork and doing things the correct way that I feel like that's kind of where the duality of this movie lies is like, okay, yeah. you want to say you're being really productive, but clearly nothing is getting done in this world. And even Sam Lowry kind of exemplifies that because he doesn't want to get a promotion. He's fine doing what he's doing because it's nice and easy. But the second he gets a promotion, he's going to have to do more things but even th those more things is a desk that he's sharing with somebody on the other wall that they have to like do the little pulley thingy for yeah yeah and that's a really good point you brought up in the beginning how it doesn't seem that efficient and most of the time we see sam lowry doing his job before he gets transferred it's him 
trying to figure out ways so they don't get blamed for a mistake rather than actually do something. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, we don't make mistakes. Nobody ever makes mistakes. This has never happened while I worked here. What's going on? Yeah, like one new one new thing pops up and the whole food chain sort of gets messed up. And that's why that scene with those guys fixing his apartment is so important because it's like for those who are about to take an ACT, here's a good sentence. They pull back the veneer of the world and everything is just hanging out in the mess that's actually there once you take off the wall. Mm-hmm. Like exactly. That, that, is probably the best example of the whole movie in the world that we're living in. But I'd say another thing that we definitely need to talk about in this movie, because it also does it very well, is the comedy aspect of it. Oh, facts, dude. Yeah. Oh, because... Did, wait, didn't she have twins? Oh, no. Well, they're triplets now. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> that joke was so funny. That joke was hilarious, and the comedy throughout the whole movie, almost every joke sinks, and that's coming from two young people today when it was made in what like the 80s yeah it was made a decade before you and i were born yeah so that i think is a very good point to make that the comedy in the movie really hits home um and it it's making fun of like things that are kind of scary topics <laughs> oh, think yeah. about it oh, 100%. <laughs> it's taking this you know 1984 feel world and sort of making fun of how it came to be <laughs> it's like it looks pretty terrible so we've done a couple dystopian movies like uh 12 monkeys zardoz for example that was a fun one um what kind of uh not what kind of, how would you rank this dystopian world to you? Because obviously then we have like uh, movies like Mad Max and stuff where it's like the apocalypse afterwards. How do you feel about how this dystopia functions? We kind of just talked about that with that whole air duct conversation, but like yeah. in terms of what a utopia dystopia is supposed to be, where'd this one really land for you? I think this one lands pretty high because it seems... It definitely seems fantastic in sort of just the imagery of it, but the way people act in it seems very human and very believable. Like when they're all in that uh, uh, sort of office area, there's like like a hundred guys going back and forth, just moving papers around. It's got all that whole line of screens, mm-hmm. you know. That's and then their boss goes into the office and they all turn on like a movie because they're they just don't work in front like they only work when he's watching them. That is just so real and hilarious to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that seems very believable. Oh, the second the boss is out, all right, everybody, we're not working. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's back to being distracted, and it feels like it feels like this. Everything in this world is backwards. It's like everybody is supposed to be happy enough to not need distractions, yet they're all always watching TV. There's televisions everywhere in this movie, and it's like even in the apartment, like right when it starts, I'm pretty sure there were like three or four TVs like scattered around her apartment, which is like really, really interesting, honestly. That was really cool, too, because there's actually, I noticed that, there's actually one TV around in her apartment, the love interest, I forget her name. I'm sorry. Um, uh, Jill, but Jill, 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 Jill. So in Jill's apartment, there's like one TV, but she had like a bunch of mirrors angled so she could watch that one TV while she's taking a bath. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, for sure. So like that, that's 
I think highlights your point very well. It's like clearly they don't have the mean she doesn't have the means to get another one, but it's so important to her that she's strategically staged her entire apartment to be able to just to watch it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, how do you I just kind of thought of this while we were talking about that. Um, the character Shirley, she was Sam's mother's friend's daughter. She had the braces thing around her. I feel like she kind of exemplifies um, a, a really realistic character that would be in this world. Because, you know, Sam is the star, so he's a little bit off. And then his mom is crazy, I'll say it, <laughs> she, with the, with the oh, yeah. plastic on her face and everything. And, um, like, ev every other character kind of feels like they belong. And I felt like... Um, Shirley's kind of, at, I'm pretty sure her name was Shirley. Her, her, her attitude was kind of more like, Hey Sam, what's going on right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. She seemed th that, God, it's another great point. You're making good points today, Luke. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Cause she definitely seems just like somebody that's just in the mix. Like she's just going with the flow, but she doesn't really have to do anything because of her status. Like you get a clear defining point where, um, What's his name? God, I, I hate this. Where Sam Lowry, like his mom, they don't, you don't ever really see them do anything productive. They're just part of the uh, aristocracy mm -hmm. or the or the oligarchy, however you want to say it. And so that is very defined, too, because you get a class thing that clearly Sam doesn't want to be a part of. And surely may not want to be a part of it, but she's just going with the flow because everybody else is. Yeah. And she's not. Sorry. No, you, oh. you, you go. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that she's also like, she seems invested, but not more, not on the same level as his mom or his mom's friend. Um, what I was going to relate that to was while I was researching, um, I, I noticed a point someone made and it was about how when the first explosion happens that I mentioned earlier, Sam's unbothered by it. But then later in the movie, when the explosion happens, he like puts his coat around that woman, um, and that stuff. So we kind of got to see the empathy of Sam Lowry unfold throughout the movie as he kind of backed away from the, uh, bureaucracy. But, like, mm -hmm. that kind of goes along with it, too, where it's, like, every person in this world is just going along with it. There was an explosion in the restaurant. I'm still going to eat my green barf cookie, you know? Yeah. And so when you're when you're putting it in conjunction with, like, Sam's character and how he kind of gets out of it compared to characters like Shirley who are just walking the line, it gets, it's, like, a little disturbing, honestly, dude, that, like, the world got to this point. It really is disturbing. And thinking about those two scenes, I mean, we've got one, they're both, they both take place in the same kind of area where the rich are the ones that are the primary people in there. We've got the restaurant and like the shopping center, whatever it is. And that first time it's sort of like nonchalant. And I would assume it's because, you know, all right, they're in the super wealthy place. They don't have to worry about anything. So they're not even worried about an explosion. And then as we kind of the story unfolds and we get that sense that, like, have you ever actually even met a terrorist? It's like it seems like terrorism is just sort of an excuse for everything that malfunctions in the society when it's not really there. Exactly. Exactly. And Robert De Niro's whole char character was just like, I hated paperwork. Too much paperwork. And, like, it's not even defined that he's, like, a bad person. Just, he just hates paperwork, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, that's totally understandable. We saw the amount of paperwork they had to do, how those guys' entire job got messed up because he asked them if they had a single form. And all Robert De Niro did was plug in like a bypass whatever, the not real bypass thing. And it's like, that's not allowed, but they are allowed to go through his entire apartment and destroy everything. And yeah, and <laughs> take it over for two weeks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So... I think I think we just tapped upon the real theme of this movie is the just the the juxtaposition of Sam discovering how strange this world is and how none of it makes sense. And like if you want to talk about how you're going to craft your movie, I am so interested in what day 1 of this idea was for Terry Gilliam. Like when day 1 of Brazil <laughs> thought came into his mind because how do you craft something that's such a a mess but not a mess at the same time it's so it's crap it's masterfully crafted dude and it's so understandable as to why you're kind of in the middle on if you really like it or really don't because i feel like you really have to talk about what you just watched to even understand what's going on so again this is definitely a movie that you want to watch two times and i think i'm gonna watch it a second time and that really gets us if you don't mind me going back to the theme that we said because we said it was freedom from the utopia slash dystopia. It's freedom from the world that he lives in. And that is really sort of the focus of the movie. It's not really about the plot, so to speak. It's really about the world that they're in, which I think I can't remember what movies I've said that for. Was it 12 monkeys? It wasn't 12 monkeys. I don't think anyway, <laughs> I know I've said that before, but this is a movie that really does that. And if you're trying to follow the plot, you're probably not going to have a very good time. You're <laughs> not going to have a good time. <laughs> Especially for the ending of the movie, um, which I think I, I think we can get into now, where you don't, you, you're not really following exactly what Sam Lowry is doing. You follow his interactions with the people in that world. It's getting to the ending is confusing in itself too because. Like, dude, the plot is almost barely there, and it's just over overwhelmed by everything going on in the world, that at the end of the movie, it's really just, um, Sam got a promotion and abused his promotion to meet this woman and got punished for it. That's, like, the entire plot of the film and what leads up to the ending, and when you say it like that, it sounds really underwhelming, but there was so much leading up to him sitting down in that chair. I'm really interested in how you kind of interpret the last 15 or so minutes of the movie. I mean, I, at first I had a very confused understanding of it. So I was like, all right, at what point did he actually sort of go crazy? Like, did he even take her to his mom's apartment? Yeah. Did that, did that even happen? Yeah. Looking back on it now, though, it's it makes a bit more sense because the whole movie we see his daydreams and they're very distinct from what's actually going on. And then at the end... Um, we should talk about how many endings there are too. At the end, it it makes sense that it gets totally distorted because they are, you know, essentially lobotomizing him, and we can't tell reality from what's actually happening. Much of like the entire movie, <laughs> yeah. Much much of like his love interest too. He doesn't really believe it, and it just sort of works out for him, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't seem like it should. Huh. That's a really that's a that's a that's a really good point that like even once that 
um crazy moment how the the second that the baby face doctor gets shot in the head is when the hallucination starts but the movie gave us so much leading up to that and how weird the world was it's not even a stretch that it was and what i wanted to say was um i thought the dreams were even a little jarring in the movie because it's not always clear that they happened while he was sleeping you know what i mean like we'll be on one part and then all of a sudden we're back fighting the giant robot samurai so again, that's just another way where like this whole movie is just playing with what you're paying attention to and what you're not paying attention to. And then at the end, they're like, maybe all of this was just fake, man. You ever think about that, bro? <laughs> yeah, it's like the lines are slowly blurred. And I don't even think you realize it till the very end where the lines aren't even there anymore. Mm hmm. <laughs> and that, 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 that will mess with your head, ladies and gentlemen. That will mess with your head. Yeah. How do you I'm just I'm the more we talk about it, the more blown away I am at just how there's so much method behind this madness, and it's one of the maddest movies I've ever seen. So I guess that means there's the most method I've ever seen behind this movie, dude. And like, it's just it's not yeah. it's not easy, and you really have to sit down and be like, wow, that was crazy. Because if if this movie it does have like a bit of a cult following, and it's considered a good film by a lot of people who really study filmmaking. If if Terry Gilliam wasn't a master of what he does, this would be one of the most confusing films ever that nobody ever talked about again. Yeah, I will say he's probably hands down the best world builder um, from a writing and directing standpoint that we've seen. Yeah, Just, I, dude, I, he, I would say specifically visually when you look at like 12 Monkeys or this movie. Yeah, he just goes full tilt and doesn't say sorry. He just keeps it going. And it, it has enough of those familiar circumstances for us to sort of understand what's going on where we don't need that much of explanation. Kind of like our biggest critique for uh, Blade Runner was sort of it gets a little bit confusing because I don't really know what's going on, which was seemed purposeful. But in this one, it's sort of we know the systems around ev like everything that's incredibly weird and unique also has a bit of familiarity with it. Yeah. Like, we as people in this society know... We we can understand what's going on with those people. And, like, what their role is. But the plot... Good lord, try to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, I feel exactly the same way. Um, what we kind of didn't talk about for the past um, 35 minutes was Sam Lowry himself. How do you feel about Sam's performance, dude? What I kind of thought of while watching it, I kind of thought Sam Lowry was supposed to be the character that was in Scanners. The way that he perceives the world and is very upfront and straight-faced and kind of seems confused, but at the same time knows what's going on. How do you feel about his performance in this one? I thought, I mean, the actor incredible performance um totally believable and we can see his his moment of being unhinged it really sinks in as believable and i i don't know if you got this feeling but it's like i get that awkward feeling when he like finally starts working at the ministry of information and it's like oh you should have just done your job a little bit yeah, <laughs> like they would they yeah. wouldn't they would they'd believe you if you just did a little bit of your job but it's yeah. like but no we don't want him to do his job because the world is trash he has to share his desk through a wall which was so funny that was hilarious dude <laughs> well and so i believe his character his his development i believe it 100 percent 
what's what's odd about that that I just thought of when you said that was earlier in the movie they're trying so hard to fix this mistake because nothing bad can happen in this world and there's always an excuse this world is full of excuses where if something happens with the paperwork and it got wrong it's not someone's fault it's someone else's fault and they'll send you another piece of paperwork to fix that fault yet somehow Sam still gets caught at the end because he stops caring about that bureaucracy. So, like, you're totally right. If if he didn't change as much as he did, he probably could have got away with it just because it feels like no one's really paying that much attention. But we're just that escalation of his sort of... Uh, it's not like insanity. Cause he doesn't necessarily become insane until he's literally insane. It's just more of... He doesn't like it's like people don't belong in that world, and he exemplifies that. That's why it's pretty believable when Jill sort of starts to follow him, even though she was very hesitant to in the beginning. It makes sense because anything seems better than the strict regulation of the life they're in now. If you catch my drift, no, I, I got your drift, dude. I'm just I'm thinking about how how perfect it is that it's such strict regulation that clearly doesn't help anything. It clearly, yeah. nothing in this world is going efficiently at all in a world that's supposed to be efficient. And, you know, you know, Mr. Gilliam, maybe that was just your point about the world <laughs> we live in today, you know? <laughs> yeah. Let, let, let's let talk about, however, because there might be a bit of confusion with people who are like, what do you mean the ending was confusing? What do you mean lobotomy? Um, because there were, like in Blade Runner, three different versions of this movie. <laughs> uh, and Nash and I may have by accident watched different versions, but we're still we here. We're still here. <laughs> we may have watched different versions, but we think they're, they both were the ones with the same ending, which is the critical part that two of them have one of the original one was the European release. And that one is the longest version. So if you're looking at the timestamp, it's like 138 minutes or 48 minutes or something. 43 minutes. I think so. About two hours, 20 minutes, I think. So that's the longest version. And then there was the universal release for the United States. So it's the U.S. version or what did you call it, Luke? You said it had another title. Uh, I saw people online calling it the Love Conquers All version. Yeah, and so that ending, um, Universal Studios was in charge of the release um, for America, and they didn't feel that the ending played very well with American audiences because it was too sad, him getting lobotomized at the end. Um, so they just changed the ending entirely without telling Gilliam that, <laughs> and made it ending with a daydream, and he runs off into the sky as Jill holds on to him and they fly away. God, you gotta love big Hollywood, just really really making us question ourselves in filmmaking and uh, anything challenging at all, you know? Hey! They didn't like that. Change it! We need happiness <laughs> here. <laughs> we need happy, pump happy into the masses. Yeah, <laughs> pump it, pump it, pump it. <laughs> Which is honestly kind of speaks to this film as a whole because that's oh, kind of exactly what I it's even, about. <laughs> I did not even think about that. Did not even think it, about that. They literally didn't even watch the movie, dude. <laughs> it's literally the most meta thing that's ever happened. That is so meta. Oh my god, dude. They literally ruined the movie in a movie talking about how they ruined movies. Uh, that's poetry right there. That's poetry. 
And so then after Gilliam, you know, discovered that he was a little ticked off. And so they released another version where Universal allowed Gilliam with his supervision. They edited uh, a final cut, I guess you want to say, because it was the last one made. And that one runs like that one, I think, runs 132 minutes. Yeah, I think I watched that one and you watched the European one, from what I understand, because I finished the movie and you were I was like, that was crazy. And you were like, what was crazy? I was like, "Um, (laughs) I don't know what just happened. (laughs) And so both those both those movies, the European one, and the final cut, they have the same ending they're relatively the same movie it's just the european one has a few extended scenes um so if you're confused about what we're saying you probably watched the love conquers all ending <laughs> which in turn makes you more meta than nash and i will ever be uh, <laughs> I, ha- I hate this planet <laughs> yeah but i mean yeah man like this this really is a movie where like what are if you're going to review it are you going to talk about the plot the plot isn't really what's important here what's what's important here is the way that everything else functions around that and it really it's really just i've said this like 3 times but i think it's a masterclass film and terry gilliam knows what he's doing with the camera and i'm excited to keep our streak of every 20 episodes reviewing a terry gilliam film cuz i honestly want to watch everything he's ever made yeah no i i agree this movie Definitely, I didn't like it as much immediately after it ended, but then we just thought about it till we recorded this. I like it more. Um, I will say it's a hard watch. Definitely not for everybody. Yeah, I, yeah, you're not going to see a ton of people like it if you try to show... If you have friends that, or family that are kind of like us that watch these bizarre movies or really like films, let them watch it. Uh, because they'll probably be like, that was pretty crazy. You know, if you got, if you got film critic fans, let, 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 give them a watch, give them a watch, give them a watch, give them a watch. On that point, Luke, do you have anything else you want to say before I wrap things up? Uh, no, man, just to elaborate on that point quickly. Um, it's, it's, it could be seen as just a weird movie. It's just weird, man. Why are you watching that Brazil movie? It's like so quirky that you like Brazil. But it like really under underneath all that weirdness, I really think there is a lot there. And even though it's not for everybody and it can be really confusing, it's it's I I think it's an important film. I think I think it's an important film that just really shows there are no right answers to filmmaking, which is exactly what Terry Gilliam believes himself from what I understand. So um, before we hit record, I had no idea what we were going to talk about, but I think, yep. I think we did a pretty good idea <laughs> encompassing what we thought the movie was supposed to mean. Yeah. And to end on it, um, to end Brazil, you know, where do we begin? Well, it is a very highly regarded film. Like you said, it's won numerous awards and it's praised for its use of comedy on incredibly serious topics that exist as foresight into the lives to come for people during its release, basing itself off of 1984. It was actually almost titled 1984 and a half. Um, upon its release, however, it's not surprising it made roughly $5 million less than it cost to produce, seeing as how the story is chaotic and hard to follow, especially near the end. The set, actors, and dialogue is all perfectly used, but leaves the f- but the film itself really leaves us with a mixed bag because of how the plot is structured 
with the fantastical daydreams being the biggest guide to our main character's wants. The love story is unique, and we appreciate that development, which is huge, because you know how we usually rag on the uh, love stories. But it also seems to occur out of an instance of need, leaving it feeling hasty in conjunction with the fast-paced story arc behind it. It's not necessarily a negative, but a major point of the plot that alludes to why this movie isn't supposed to be so focused on that plot, but rather the code of ethics each character has in this very intrinsically exposed world. I know for a fact that was a tough paragraph for you to write, but I think you encompassed kind of... I think I th- I, th- I think that's I think that's really really well said for what this movie is and how much it just makes you go what is going on man <laughs> yeah I yeah that's that was probably the hardest one to write um but I did enjoy doing it um just because this movie definitely deserves attention just know the kind just know what you're gonna watch <laughs> yeah, really... Nash and I had no idea and by the end of it like, <laughs> I, I was exhausted dude I was exhausted at the end of that movie I was like oh god bro <laughs> <laughs> what is going on <laughs> all right so on that note we want to thank you for joining us tonight uh, message us at midnight showing podcast on Instagram or email midnight showing with Luke and Nash at gmail.com to stay in the loop for upcoming episodes and offer suggestions for movies we can watch and future content that we can bring to you. Uh, be sure to check us out at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. And next week's episode features prisoners. Oh, oh, hello. And remember, your donations keep the blue lights on. So, Nash, uh, care for a little necrophilia? <laughs> I should have guessed that one. I should have guessed that one. That was an easy one. That was an easy one.